the heavens rejoice in the glory of God. And Father, we choose to rejoice in your glory today also, to be thankful that you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the master of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who from eternity past has chosen us to be the children of God. Lord, I pray that we will view our daily lives from the eternal perspective, that we will see ourselves as you see us, and you'll help us to lift our, our heads out of the uh, darkness of this world into the br brightness of your glory and to be uplifted and encouraged because you are doing a great work, Father, and you're doing it individually and you're doing it throughout your church around the world, and we're grateful. Father, we're thankful that you have given us this hour, this day, to spend in your house and to praise your name and to study your word. We ask you to speak to us today from the word of God, that you will illumine our minds and lighten our path. And Father, that you'll give us the faithfulness to walk in the on the path that you set before us. Lord, I know that there are many needs out here this morning in this group needs that others may not know, but you know, and I trust you to meet those needs and to use whatever pain and difficulty that comes into our lives to make us stronger in faith and to cause us to be truly diamonds that sparkle and reflect the brilliance of the glory of God. Lord, bless this hour throughout this complex this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 30. I'd like to read the first 10 verses. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. And the Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall obey, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you th today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body and in the offspring of your cattle and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. I think this passage of scripture that we have just read can be understood as both a promise and a prophecy. It was a promise concerning what God would do for his people if they turned away from serving him, but later turned to repentance and obedience. It was a prophecy, however, in the sense that that exactly what happened. 
the Israelites would become disobedient and they would be carried into captivity and restoration would occur. And of course, most of us, if we've studied the Old Testament, we know the, the major example of this when the uh, Babylonians walked in and took over Jerusalem and all of Judea and carried off a good portion of the population over into the Babylonian realm. And then 70 years later, they began the second exodus and the return. And, and this is, of course, the primary biblical example of the reality of this particular prophecy and, and promise. But it would be carried out individually and it would be carried out nationally on a smaller scale from time to time also. Sometimes, in fact, as we get into the book of Joshua, we'll see that there were times when the Israelites were in effect in captivity in their own land, when uh, one of the neighboring powers had authority over them because they had done wrong, evil in the sight of the Lord, and he turned them over to them. And then, of course, they repented and returned to God, and, and he gave them victory. So it can be seen to have manifested itself in several venues. We have in this passage a powerful reaffirmation of God's compassion and God's mercy. We also find a restatement of the principle that we have come across several times in Scripture as we've studied through Genesis and the remaining books of the Pentateuch, that God's blessings are not to be taken for granted. They are contingent. Even as we read in this passage this morning in verse 10 where it says, well, it, it says these things that God would do in verses 7 and 8 and 9. And then in verse 10 starts out with a conditional phrase, if, if you obey the Lord your God. God's blessings are contingent. They're contingent upon faith. They're contingent upon obedience. This, I think, is clear throughout this passage. In verses 2 and 3 of this passage, we read, that what would trigger God's blessing. He says, you, if you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul and do what I'm commanding you this day, th this would move God in the direction of blessing His people. You and I use a verse very frequently, probably, almost maybe to the point of making it nearly trite. And that is, of course, Romans 8, 28 where we so often say, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Well, this is definitely a promise that is in the Word of God, but it is contingent, right? Because I didn't quote the whole verse, did I? The whole verse says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. It's a contingent verse, isn't it? It's not a blanket verse that we can just toss out any old time. I had an accident. I was in this automobile wreck. Well, it's because I stayed up all night and didn't get any sleep and fell asleep and crashed the car or, you know, because I was driving too fast on a wet road. But God causes all things to work together for good. Well, this is true. Providing we love God and we're called according to His purpose, which means we are walking in obedience to Him that are desirous to serve Him and that their overwhelming goal in life is to do what He has called us to do, then yes, this is true. Even the things that are bad in life are used by God to work out for good. But those who aren't loving God and those who are not purposely following Him, God makes no promise to work all things together for good. Makes no promise. I, I truly believe that there are people who have died sooner than they otherwise would have died had they really been committed to God and had they been walking according to His purpose. 
you know, nothing happens without God knowing about it or God allowing it or God causing it. But at the same time, I think things would be different in many cases if commitment to God were there. In verse 6 of this passage, we find that God promised that he would circumcise the heart of those that return to him. Circumcise the heart. I, I think what that means is that he would open spiritually blind eyes that the people could see, that they could truly see God and the glory of his name and his majesty, and they could understand what it is that he is calling them to do and that they could learn to be obedient. I think unless the heart is, quote, circumcised, as referred to in this scripture, people remain ignorant of God and of his purposes. And I think that's why so many people say, boy, I can't understand this book at all. You know, I try to read it and it makes no sense. Their hearts are uncircumcised. Their eyes have not been opened. They're still blind. They can't see. Now, it's obviously true that somebody who's a newborn babe in Christ can't sit down and read the Bible like somebody who's walked with the Lord for 30 or 40 years. I mean, we grow in maturity and understanding, and that's the whole purpose of classes like this or, or messages in, in church. I mean, if we all knew it all from the beginning, then we wouldn't need any of it, would we? But to have no comprehension as weeks go by and months go by and still I can't understand a word of it, I, I think, you know, we're dealing with a person whose heart is yet to be circumcised, whose eyes are yet to be really opened. The emphasis in verse 10 of this passage, I think, reveals to us that having a warm, fuzzy feeling about God and simply trying to live a decent life is not enough. It's not adequate to receive God's blessing. It's necessary, the passage tells us, if you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in the book, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. There's been a debate that's gone on for years within the church having to do with whether you can know the Lord as your Savior, but not yet acknowledge him as your Lord. Now, the whole lordship deal. And, I, you know, I really have a problem with that because... Whatever we acknowledge, he is Lord, period. <laughs> I mean, there is no question. He is Lord. He is God. He is the ruler of the universe. I think when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we've truly been transformed, there isn't any way that can happen without our acknowledging who he is and that he is the Lord of the universe. Now, we may be immature in that we haven't yet learned how to be obedient, but our desire would be to be obedient. And that's what God looks upon, is the desire of the heart. What is the desire of our heart? Is the true desire of our heart to be obedient to Him? If we want to do right in His eyes, I think, you know, we still will fail along the way. But He sees the desire, and that's what He wants. And I think that's what He's talking about here. He's not talking about people who walk the straight and narrow and never deviated to the right or the left at any moment in time. Because even Moses did. That's why he isn't going into the promised land. But it's the heart, the desire of the heart to follow God and to do his will in his way. And I think it's necessary to turn to God with all of our hearts, to study the truth of the word and its commandments, and to strive to be obedient. Our goal is to be obedient. I hope that's our goal. If we move on and begin reading at verse 11 here, it, it continues in this vein. Verse 11, 
of chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, we read, For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth, in your heart, that you may observe it. There would be those in Israel who would claim that they can't really know what God wanted them to do. Those who would say God's commandments are beyond human attainment. We can't understand them. We, we can't do them. They're too hard. But we're told in this passage that that is untrue. Understanding of God's word is not out of reach. It is totally within our reach. One of the things we discover, and I'm sure you have as I have, is you can read this chapter like we're reading right now today, a year from now, and find something that you didn't even see the last time. And five years from now, other things you didn't see in that passage. And that's because this is the living word. And it's not because it wasn't there before. It's because we weren't prepared to receive what's there at this moment in time. It's there. It's ever before us. It's not beyond the universe, out there somewhere. It's not across the sea where it can't be heard and understand, understood. It was available to every Israelite because there they were, hearing the word of the Lord proclaimed by Moses. It was there. It was available to every one of them. And it was life transforming. Life transforming. Most of us, I think, are familiar with that wonderful Psalm 19. Let me just read a few verses from it relative to this. Psalm 19, uh, beginning at verse 7. Scripture says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Isn't that encouraging? It is for me anyway. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And as we look at this passage in Deuteronomy this morning, we're going to discover what we already, I'm sure, know, and that is the reward in keeping them is not only temporal, it is eternal. Or maybe I should say, it is not only eternal, it is temporal. You and I are more greatly blessed than Israel. You might say, how gr more greatly blessed can you have, be than to have Moses in your midst? You can be more greatly blessed in our day and age because the God's word is more available to us than it even was for Israel. Israel, the Israelites could not take a copy of it home at night to study it. The Israelites didn't have anything but the first five books. We have the whole counsel of God. We have men and women today particularly, of course, men in, in the pulpits and men and women as Bible teachers who are able to rightly divide the word and, and to encourage understanding. The nearness of God's word to us is a wondrous thing. 
Do we, do we really have thankful hearts that we have the availability of God's Word actually every minute of our life? In fact, if we have hidden it in our hearts, we have it everywhere all the time, don't we? Because the Spirit of God can bring to our minds those passages which we have committed to memory, and He can speak to us no matter how difficult the situation might be, how intense the pain might be. God is able to speak to us. And of course, it is through the power of the Word that we came to salvation in the first place. Let me read also another well-known passage from Romans 10, beginning at verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. The word of God is near. For some people in the world, the word of God is near only when it's brought by the preacher, by those who go and proclaim the word. But then it is made near. We live in a day and age when a very large percentage of our population poo-poos the word of God. It's not near to them because they don't even believe that it's significant. They feel it's a book of legends, a human-manufactured book of poems and little stories that have nothing to do with real life. But for those who have been called by God, it's near. It's, it's in the heart. It's on the lips. It's in the mind. It's enlightened by the Spirit of God. When the heart of an Israelite was circumcised by God, or when you or I were called to atoning faith in the work of Christ, God put a believing heart into us, and through that believing heart, He gave us the ability to understand His Word, and also the ability to heed it. It takes, I think, a real intent of a person to reject the Word if that person's heart has been touched by God. And I think it's possible for someone touched by God to in purposely attempt to run from it and to turn his heart hardened against the Word of God. Because the Spirit will give us the ability to understand it and the desire to understand it if we have truly come to faith and had our hearts circumcised by God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to do several things. He uses the Word to convict of sin. 
How many of us have been convicted in our hearts by reading the word of sin in our lives? To convince us of truth. You know, we live in a day and age when the question might be asked as, as uh, Pontius Pilate did. What, what is truth? Wasn't that Pilate? Was Pilate, not Herod, right? <laughs> what is truth? In our day and age, that's an easy question to ask because young people today are being raised, especially in secular universities, with no foundation. That truth is totally relevant. Or I, I, not relevant isn't the word I want, is it? Uh, relative, there we go. <laughs> Thanks. Truth is relevant. <laughs> but, but it's declared to be relative. And, and it's relative to our own framework. What's true for me may not be true for you. Well, if it's the eternal word of God, I don't care who you are, it's true. It was true for Pontius Pilate as it was true for the poorest Israelite out in the countryside chasing sheep. It was true for Caesar Augustus or Tiberius at the time Jesus died. But they didn't recognize it. They didn't acknowledge it. The Spirit uses the word to convict us of sin, to convince us of truth, and to strengthen us in our faith and in our obedience. He shows us what is obedience. What, what does it mean to be obedient? The scripture is that path. It helps us to know this is the way, walk ye in it. And, and as we walk in obedience to the word, the longer we walk in obedience, the easier it is to walk in obedience. And in fact, it can become habitual. You know, for many of us, I trust, who have walked with the Lord a long time, certain kinds of things are, are just beyond our ability to even imagine ourselves doing. In fact, if we catch ourselves on the verge of something, we think, whoa, you know, I can't do that. And it's because the path has been made clear to us and we've walked in it for a long time. The younger, of course, we are in the Lord, the less we know about that path. And the easier it is to walk away from it. But God is faithful for those who will stick with his word and study it to teach them habitual obedience to the word of God. The last portion of the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy has some of the most wonderful statements in all of Scripture, beginning at verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. How? By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. You and I, I think, well recognize the fact that we live in a vain and frivolous society. We live in a society that believes that what goes on in bedrooms, bars, and ball fields 
is the most important of things that goes on in life today. In these verses in Deuteronomy 30, Moses challenges Israel to focus on what is truly important. That which makes the difference between the quality of life here and eternity. Before he left, I mean, can you just think about the fact that Moses has been leading this people for 40 years. And he's about to leave now because the Lord has called him home. And before he leaves, he wants the people to see very, very clearly the options God has set before them. He wanted them to understand that the choice was theirs, as were the consequences. They could choose to live in obedience to the Word of God and experience blessing, or they could choose to refuse to obey God and receive judgment. It was their choice. In fact, he warned that if they chose to turn their backs upon, the God, upon God, they would die prematurely. Now, we have to re remember, of course, that Moses knew God intimately. And I think Moses, in many ways, had the heart of God in him. And Moses had great compassion on this people. I don't think he was standing up there saying to them, choose whether you're going to follow God or not, and choose blessing or choose curse, or choose life or die, and just spitting it out as if it were, you know, like you were some kind of a lawyer. I think that he was saying it with the compassion of God. This is your choice, but please choose life. He urged the people to choose life. That meant, of course, what? That they had to determine in their hearts to completely give themselves over to the love of God. They couldn't love God and love these other gods of the peoples around them. They, they couldn't, quote, hedge their bets. Well, I'm going to believe in Yahweh, but I'm also going to believe in Apis and, uh, you know, Molech and Baal and, and all the other gods because, you know, I'm, I'm uh, broad-minded. I, I don't want to be a bigot, but I, I want to, of course, make everybody happy with me, so I'll believe their, their stuff too. No, they had to give themselves over totally to the love of God only, to obey His will, as revealed in his word, and to obey what he has said to do. The 19th verse of, of uh, this chapter gives us as clear a picture as you will find anywhere in Scripture as to the choice that people must make. These words were, wrote, were spoken and written by Moses, but they are the words of God. I have set before you life and death, blessing and the curse. No person can avoid that choice. No person ever born in this planet can avoid that choice. They must choose life or death. Now, most, of, most people, of course, will make the choice relatively unconsciously because they aren't paying any attention to God's call. And so by choosing to walk in their own way and ignoring the Word of God, they have chosen death. They have chosen curse. And you and I, of course, looking at their lives will say, but, but they don't look cursed to me. They have a mansion and they have eight weeks vacation in Europe every year and they have 16 cars and they have 45 horses and, you know, they have a big boat out in the Pacific. I mean, that doesn't look like curse to me. But what are these physical things of life anyway? Scripture says it's all going to burn with a fervent heat. And all it takes is one little tornado, which is just a bunch of air you can't even see. 
moving at a high speed and, and you know, it's all splitters. <laughs> you, you can't see the curse that's in their heart. You can't see the mold, the rot, the, the chewing away at their lives. And, and you know, it's one of, the re one of the reasons why these people go through so, through, go through so many mates. They think somehow their mate's going to be the perfect uh, uh, person to, to make life a, you know, a bowl of jelly beans. And what it turns out to be, of course, is their mate is just as empty as they are. And, and, and they get divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried. And it goes on and on and on and on ad, fin ad infinitum or whatever the word is. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> Till they're dead. I mean, it's a curse. The curse is there. Sometimes we don't see it. But we can know it's there. And I have known, as I, sh I know some of you have known, I have known some people who have had very little in this life, and yet the joy of the Lord just bubbled through their lives. I mean, they had great joy and peace in this life. It didn't matter that their, their car was 20 years old and their, their house only had one bathroom and two bedrooms or whatever, you know. It, it didn't matter to them. Maybe sure they would have liked three bedrooms and two bathrooms, you know, and a 10-year-old car instead. But, you know, that didn't change the joy they had. The blessing of God doesn't always show up in all of us driving Lexus or whatever. Some of you may, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not putting you down for that. I, I'm just saying, you know, not all of us are going to drive the finest car or live in the finest house just because we're experiencing the blessing of God because God doesn't view blessing often the way we do. We think blessing, of course, often, well, I trust we don't just think this, but it's common for humans to believe that blessing is vibrant, robust health, you know, not a sick day in your life, uh, beautiful cars and beautiful kids and, you know, the whole ball of wax. And that may not be real blessing. Sometimes that's a curse. Sometimes I really feel sorry for people who were born physically almost perfect, you know, from the human perspective because so many of them end up like you may have read about it in the paper. This gal who was Miss something back in Michigan came out here and became Miss Hollywood and she had all this great future ahead of her and she's, she was found dead in a, stabbed to death in a, in a prostitute's lot down in Fresno. You know, one step above hell. And you, you think, you know, sometimes having all the wonderful, beautiful things that are looked up to in this life can be a curse, a huge curse, rather than a blessing. No one anywhere can avoid the choice. Joshua will say, and when we get to Joshua, we'll study that passage, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whatever that means, we will serve the Lord. God has given to us, as free moral agents, the right to choose. And we can choose right and we can choose wrong. We can't choose neutral because there is no such thing as neutral. We can only choose right or we can choose wrong. But we pay for the choice. The consequences come with it. It's a package deal. With obedience came blessing. With disobedience came curse. Automatic. The last line of verse 19 helps us to understand a couple of important truths. Life is not simply functioning biologically in this world. True life is the union of the body, soul, and spirit with our Creator. Union with Him. And that grants to us not only temporal life and all the blessing that God will pour out upon us in this life, but eternal life. And, and Scripture tells us that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, nor it has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those that love Him. 
We have all these kinds of ideas what heaven is like. Oh, you know, somebody says streets of gold. So we think of modern day streets, only we make them gold in our minds, you know. Line down the middle, you know, curbs over here, parking meters along the edge, they'd be all out of gold too. And, <laughs> and even try to picture the, the new Jerusalem, you know, as, as some kind of as this structure with high walls made out of all these wonderful uh, gemstones. And I'm not saying it won't be like that, but I think that way we think of it is, is so far from the reality that uh, we might as well not bother trying to figure it out. There are those who feel that the, the difference between going to heaven and going to hell is not that big a deal. You know, it's like the old joke that Satan better watch out if he lets too many politicians in hell because they'll vote him out of office. You know, people have a trite view of what hell is about. And they have a trite view of what heaven is. It's in the cartoons all the time. What is heaven? Well, it's sitting around in a white robe with a harp and wings on your back on a cloud. Well, that's not terribly exciting to me. And of course, it has nothing to do with reality. It's, it's the devil's way of causing people to think, what's the big deal? It's the devil's way also of making think, people think that you're going to be an angel when you get to heaven. When we're in... Uh, where were we? <laughs> Georgia. <laughs> when we were in Georgia uh, two weeks ago, one of our granddaughters, um, she's our step-granddaughter, she was raised in a, in a different tradition, and, and she was firmly convinced that when you died and went to heaven, you became an angel. We tried to tell her, the scripture does not say that. The angels are completely different beings. They are a created being of a different order, and we're going to judge angels. We're going to be above angels when we're there in heaven. We would be an angel. <laughs> we're going to be above angels. And they are ministering servants even now, you know, ministering to us. And, and so what we, we have to realize is God has something so wonderful planned for those who walk in obedience to Him <laughs> that any sacrifice in this life is worth it many times over. You couldn't make a sacrifice big enough to not make heaven worth it. Also in this passage, we discover that by choosing life, one was not choosing just a blessing upon himself, but upon his descendants also. If one chose death, in many cases, he wouldn't have any descendants because he's going to die prematurely and children that might have been born to him won't be born because he has chosen the way of death and God has taken him from this life. But by choosing life, one was, can be establishing a heritage which may go down through many, many generations of those that will follow God. And some of you are the recipients of such a heritage and some of you are part of that heritage in establishing that heritage. You may have had grandparents that followed the Lord and, and parents and now you and, and your children. Or, or you may be the first and your children will follow the Lord and their children will follow the Lord. I mean, as we walk with the Lord in obedience, He blesses us and He blesses our descendants. That's what the Scripture says. That doesn't mean every single child in your descent and descendants will walk faithfully with God, but it means that God's hand will be there in a special way and those families will be blessed in a special way. Verse 20 describes how one chooses life. You know, sometimes you hear a sermon in which somebody says, this is what you ought to do, but he doesn't tell you how to do it. Well, the scripture gives you the how-tos. Over and over again, it gives you the how-to. How do you choose life? By loving the Lord your God, 
by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. We live in a society that compartmentalizes everything. You recreate, you go to work, you have your home life, you have your religious life, and you don't want to mix them up. But the scripture says, loving God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, this is life, period. Flat out. There is nothing else. Everything else has to relate to loving God and obeying him. And so our job is in submission to him. And we must obey him in our job. And if that means sometimes calling somebody else down, I don't mean in a bad way, but calling somebody else who proclaims himself to be a Christian for saying or doing something is wrong. I mean, many of you work at jobs where you witness people doing, well, breaking the law even, you know, in what they're doing. Sometimes that mean, may mean that you have to call that person on it. It, it. it may mean that you have to proclaim you simply will not work at a particular time because that's when I must be in the Lord's house or, or whatever it might mean. You know, it, it, it moves into your work life. It moves into our recreational life. It moves into our home life. It moves into every part of our lives. Every part of our life has to radiate out from our faith in God. We can't compartmentalize it as Americans do and have historically. That's one of the reasons why it's so hard to witness to Americans, because we're individualized, compartmentalized, and it's none of your business what my religion is or what I'm doing in my religious life. But that's not what the Lord says. Those who chose life inherited Canaan, but they also inherited the eternal promised land. And there is a way by which those two tend to blend together in the Old Testament. As you study through the promises of Scripture, there is a way by which the promised land tended to kind of blend into eternity. And inheriting Canaan and the promised land was in effect also a precursor to inheriting eternal life. Now, if you've walked over there in the land of Canaan, you'd say, who'd want to inherit this place? It's dirt and rocks and hot and, you know, violent. And, but it's just a type. It's a type of eternity. It's a type of heaven. And of course, it's signified what? Peace. Shalom. What did, any, what, what did people want? Shalom. What do you want? What do I want? Shalom. We want peace, well-being in this life. And that's what they wanted. And God said, if you walk, if you love the Lord your God and walk in obedience, you will have shalom. That doesn't mean enemies won't attack, but it means they won't be victorious. It, it doesn't mean that you might not get sick. But, but it means God is there to be your healer either temporally or eternally. Certainly eternally. And, you know, it, it just needs to be understood in those terms. And I think Moses proclaimed that to the people. Well, next week I want to move into the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy because here we discover Moses is saying to them, I'm not going with you. I'm 120 years old and I'm not going with you into the land. And he's giving them a real farewell. And he says to Joshua and to the people, be strong and courageous because I may not be there, but your real leader will be there. And that's God. He will walk with you every step of the way. So don't fear losing me.